0: All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I want to thank everyone for uh, for joining us. Uh, my name is Mike Weber. If you don't know me, my name is uh, I'm I'm a managing partner of uh, Weber Research and Advisory, uh, and it's my pleasure uh, this morning to host the LNG panel for for CapitalLink. Um, before we begin and kind of get into intros and the way this is going to work, I wanted to thank. Um, Nick Bornozis um, and, uh, and Annie and the rest of the Capital Inc group for, for putting this on in difficult circumstances so, uh, so it's a great job by you guys. Um, with the, with, so the panel this morning um, we're, we're honored to have is actually it's a fantastic panel to kind of get a sense of where the LNG market is. Uh, we've got Oystein um, Kalaklev from uh, Flex LNG, the CEO of Flex, uh, Ian Ross CEO of Golar LNG, Mark Kremen, uh, CEO of gas, uh, or TK gas group, uh, and Jefferson Clark managing director, uh, at potent and partner. So again, a great, a great group to really, uh, get a sense of where the market is, uh, today and, and where we're headed for the rest of, uh, rest of 2020. So thank you gentlemen for, uh, for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you. So, so, so the way this will work is I'll, I'll throw this out. I'll throw, start throwing out questions to, uh, to the group. Um, I'll probably kind of pitch them initially to, uh, to individuals, but feel free at any point uh, to weigh in. I know everyone's going to have a take or, uh, or or kind of a differentiated view um, on the different topics at hand. But I wanted to start first um, with uh, with the market kind of grapp- grappling with COVID-19. Um, and maybe maybe throw this one out first to uh, to Mark and then uh, Oystein, you know, the, the, the two primary LNG carrier owners on the panel. Um, in terms of COVID-19 and what we're starting to see in terms of force majeure claims. Um, You know, we saw Petronet um, in the last couple of days start talking about um, not taking cargoes. Um, It seems like some of that language is gonna be within some of the contracts and at least it's gonna you know, some of these claims are gonna be going to arbitration or courts. I'm just curious from your perspective, how do you think about your business and your cash flow streams in that environment? How does it impact you as a ship owner and do you think we are seeing the worst of this now, or do you think this becomes a much bigger issue as we move through the second quarter? So I'll throw that out to uh, to Mark first, and then uh, Oystein uh, will kind of pivot to you.
1: Sure. Well, thank you. There's a lot of parts to this question, so um, I'll try to split up a bit and um, go from there. There are two parts of this. Uh, obviously, there's the revenue side and there's the expense side or the logistics side. And I think it's important to start with the revenue side, even though most of the activity is on the expense side. On the revenue side, um, I, I'd like to reiterate, we have not seen any sign that charterers will try to renegotiate or cancel. The um, We've reviewed our charters for force majeure clauses and um, they typically in LNG don't have any. That includes any charter done on shell time, which is the industry standard, and and those that charters that do, um, the force majeure must run for 12 months or more, during which period the, the ship owner is going to get going to get paid higher. So from a revenue standpoint, we don't see uh, from the shipping side any real impact. Now, obviously, you've mentioned the cargo cancellations uh, that we have seen but I'll turn a little bit more to the expense side and the logistics side, which is the real activity we're seeing on the ships. Um, At least in TK side, and I think most operators, crew relief is pretty much impossible right now. So we have been able to get fresh provisions, we've got the prescriptions we need, the crew morale is excellent, but the fact of the matter is we haven't been able to get the crews off and on and uh in some sense, that's helpful. The best thing to to avoid the virus is to keep the, the ships hard against people coming on, whether it's port authorities or mooring masters or superintendents or whatever. But over time, this could become a bigger issue as the crew begins to get fatigued about being on board for for some time and maybe i'll I'll leave it on to to others who are happy to, to detail more.
0: yeah, no, I'm just curious how you, how you solve for that i mean it's 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 I struggle to kind of think of a way you can kind of get ahead of that now. But as you see that kind of coming, right, it certainly seems what you're saying sounds pretty intuitive. Um, How how do you you try to prepare for for that in the next handful of weeks?
1: Well, fortunately, we have some big industry players hopefully behind us. The uh, International Chamber of Shipping, the ITF, others are trying to get shipping raised to the level that airlines and others are. It's essential product we're moving here. It's not just oil and it's not just gas, but foodstuffs and medicals. Again, we're all in the same place, whether it's Maersk or Flex or TK or or whoever. So hopefully we can get an industry-wide NGO or even government uh, a push to get the crew off and on. In the meantime, as I said, we've, we've stocked up on, um, on provisions and spares and, and just trying to deal with the crews the best they can. Even if they can get off, it's difficult for them to get a flight home anyway. Flights have really seized, seized up. So this might be the
2: best place for these guys at the moment.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Winston, any uh, any any thoughts to add there?
2: No, I, I agree with Mark. Uh, I think you know, for for us, you know, the time charters we we enter into is for worldwide trade. So it's not like the ships are going from A to B any longer, which you you know it was how it used to be in the past. So if if your uh, ship was trading the same route, you know, you would be more vulnerable to suddenly some some port uh, shutting down today trade worldwide, so we don't really have any force majeure clause for, let's say, one area of ports closing down. Um, You know, we have an example of this happening here in China in in February. Of course, the the import numbers on a weekly basis dropped from around 1.5 million tons all the way down to 0.5 million tons in the middle of February. And and what happened then was, uh, of course, JKM hit its all-time low. But but also what happened, uh, which is peculiar for this time of year, was the fact that you suddenly had a big spike in floating storage. So you went from uh, uh, having about zero ships to all the way up to 25 ships. And actually that supported freight rates Uh, at the end of Mm -hmm. February. uh, Rates softened in the beginning of March because all those ships uh, came into the market again. And then it's been strengthening now the last. Two three weeks and uh, with kind of uh, the JKM prices also going up again. So uh, if you look at India now, which is the, the, maybe the next candidate, uh, it's hard to tell how you know big impact it will be on on, on shipping because uh, they, they certainly need to import more LNG. It's not like they will stop. If you look at China, their pipeline imports fell by twenty percent, but LNG import only fell by five percent. So. Uh, there will probably be more inefficiencies. Floating storage has already started to pick up again. My latest number is uh, around uh, 15 ships now getting into floating storage. So, so that will, uh, you know, in the short term, kind of support the LNG shipping market. So, so uh, yeah. it's, it's it's more the problem that the end users and, and of course our customers are not able to move the cargoes, which is unfortunate.
0: Right. And I, and I want to touch on that that floating storage dynamic in in a second uh, with Jefferson. but just to just to stay on this for a second, in terms of the actual mechanics of what happens when you know you have, you know, say, a, a spot cargo or even term business that's involved in in that kind of force majeure claim or si- situation like this, are, are are you are you still getting paid? Are you building liquidated damages? Um I know it's early, um, but just mechanically, you know, what, how should we see this filter through results kind of sector-wide over the next couple of quarters?
2: Now, for, we have had chips which have delayed discharge, and of course, we are on time charter. So, it's the time that matters. So, as long as the clock is ticking, we are getting paid. So, there's not really any problem that people st- stop paying if you are uh, delayed because it's not our fault.
0: Yeah, just the only issue would be if they're not paying you because there's a force majeure clause, which it seems like that's not the case now that you're you know, cash flow is still on schedule. Yeah. Okay, Mark, Mark, it looked like you had something to add there.
1: Yeah, just to reiterate, under shell time, which is the standard, if the, there is no force majeure clause, so we're not seeing anything in time charters. And even in those special cases, um, the long 25-year type of contracts that may have a force majeure still get mm-hmm. paid for 12 months. So we've actually seen some diversions, um, and, and the payments has been – Unimpacted. Our earnings, okay. our, our, our guidance is not impacted by this. That's
0: great. That's great to hear. Um, maybe kind of pivoting into kind of what I kind of touched on a, a second ago, uh, with Jefferson, um, in terms of what POTEN is seeing right now, in terms of the way this is impacting the LNG market, um, you know, both in terms of, of, of floating storage, storage, and I want to kind of differentiate between anything structural and maybe demur- demurrage and, and mm. some, some delayed discharge. Uh, but then just, just more generally, you know, Jefferson, what are you, how are you seeing this impact, uh, kind of the day-to-day trading within, uh, within the LNG markets?
3: Yeah, echoing uh, a little bit of uh, what Oystein was saying, um, uh, we, we clearly see floating storage as kind of the safety valve over the next couple of weeks and even the next couple of months uh, for the LNG market in general. Uh, we, we measure it a little bit differently uh, at Poten, but come up to the same results. Uh, we measure floating storage as a percentage of how much LNG is on the water versus what was imported that month. So, for example, back in October, they were importing around 28 million tons of LNG that month. Uh, there was roughly around 17 to 18 million tons of LNG on the water at that time. So we calculate kind of floating storage as around 68% of the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar to what Oystein was saying, then you saw a, a discharge of all the cargoes. And now we're actually at historical lows for floating storage of around 37%. That was just at the end of last month, but we're seeing a climb back up again. We're seeing a climb back up again as fleet speed drops. So this is going to have a positive impact, at least in the short term, on the LNG shipping market. Uh, we're seeing rates climb already, uh, especially in the spot market. And really importantly, we're seeing a lot of multi-month uh, fixtures out there, which we define as anything above six months to a year. So you're seeing a lot of charterers that are playing playing it very conservative. The energy majors are playing it very conservative. They wanna ensure that they have the vessel availability to deliver their cargoes. They're not looking to take any chances. So you quickly saw a rapid change of where they were trying, energy majors were trying to sublet their vessels now to chartering in. And for us, the greatest driver or, of spot rates is always how much vessel is available on the market, uh, mm. on the spot market. So with sh- uh, energy majors no longer a competitor, but a source of the fixtures, uh, we're actually seeing vessel availability, sh- vessel availability shrink very quickly. And spot rates starting to to climb very quickly.
0: Oh, okay, that that's helpful. And uh, the the, the, meth- the inventory methodology sounds a lot like the way we actually think about stockpiles for other commodities oh. uh, relative to consumption. Um, kind of more similar to the way we think about maybe even iron ore and even 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 crude and product, mm. um, which makes sense. Um, Ian, uh, I wanted to, to to throw it to you for a second just to talk about. In ter- what you're seeing in terms of potential storage opportunities for for the legacy goalar fleet, but then also, you know, being focused on the downstream and the one area of the market that really and truly benefits from from a low cost environment, you know. Are, Aside from the storage, I want to dig into any kind of demand response. But maybe let's let's stop there. Let's just start first with the with the storage opportunities or, or inbound inquiry from from either traders or or, or end users. Um, are you seeing any 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 pickup there in terms of, in terms of infrastructure needed to build out that EM that emerging market sink?
4: Hmm. Thanks, Mike. Um, I guess the first thing is I would echo my colleagues on a panel saying that our you know, immediate uh, priority is to look after the welfare of the crew, and, and that's been covered, but a huge amount of, of, uh, of activity and resources going into making sure that their welfare is uh, up to scratch. In terms of the, the shipping market, yes, we've also seen a, a pickup in the immediate spot rates. Noting that and we took a decision about a year ago to try and put more of our fleet onto um, some form of term business, be that index linked or on straight charters. And on, certainly on the index link uh, numbers, they, they, you know, that curve has, has bottomed out and, and picked up again. Well, we don't know. I mean, we were enjoying an ARB an, an between Europe and the Far East uh, last week. And as of this morning, I believe that ARB's pretty much closed again. So we don't know how quickly that will, will cycle open and shut. But I do agree in the loading storage thesis, less about stockpiling, more about slow steaming until hopefully the rates pick up for the, for the owners of the cargo um, to, to discharge. Uh, in terms of moving to the, the downstream side, I mean, that, that's a good side of the business to, to be in. I would have thought that uh, as this continues to propagate, as, as low LNG prices are maintained over the coming months and perhaps years, we should see an uptick in the interest in FSRUs. Uh, as, as gas becoming a you know a low a cheap low cost cheap form of of uh, entry into gas fueled uh, energy, mm-hmm. and uh, directly in the downstream environment in Latin America, of course we managed to get our power station in Brazil at Sojibe um, up and running this week uh, with, with with COD, and that allows us to immediately start uh, selling merchant power into the market. And when we have such mm-hmm. a cheap LNG price we can buy LNG very uh, efficiently from a cost point of view and when the price is right, sell that into the power station. So I think the downstream market will continue to grow in the back of, of, of low cost LNG and the shipping market will do what it does. It will cycle, um, you know, and we, we, we will have things that we can predict and we'll have things that will come out of the blue and surprise us both in the upside and the downside uh, in the coming mm-hmm. weeks. You know, just in
0: terms of, you kind of touched on it briefly, but in terms of a tangible demand response, you know, I'm feeling like it's a, it's it's a bit too early because we we still have uh, containment mechanisms kind of still kind of rolling across the globe. But I'm just curious, Ian. You know, you've got you know there would be kind of green shoots or of a of, of a demand response for lower commodity prices on big assets, which probably take a little bit longer to materialize. But you guys also have a couple of pilot programs in the market right now um, in, in in Brazil where. Maybe there's, you know, you, you can get maybe more of an immediate feel for any kind of demand response to kind of cheap pricing. It still might be too early, but I'm just curious: are you seeing any things from either the, those programs or your day-to-day interactions with customers that indicate there is starting to be a demand response to cheaper LNG? And if not, that's fine. It's it's you know it's it's there's obviously a lot going on. I'm just curious: when when do you think we'll actually start to see that have a have a, have a physical or manifest itself in the market so in some kind of physical way?
4: So I think it's just, I have two two sort of answers to that. One, one is if you look at China and China's uh, pickup, and I think uh, somebody's already mentioned that, um, my understanding is 2020 is the end of the five-year plan in China. Um, despite the fact they've had a big shutdown for a couple of months, uh, I would imagine there will be quite a lot of industrial activity in China to try and recover some of the lost ground on, on closing out that five-year plan. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see the Chinese economy cranking up faster than uh, than people might imagine. I've heard numbers of 90, 95% ca- capacity in terms of uh, in industrial ability to, to perform tasks. We have a project for an FL, FSIU conversion happening in, in China at the moment. And that's had a, a little bit of a stumble, but has recovered fairly quickly and, and the, the teams are back to work there. So I haven't mean, been there, but anecdotally, China's, uh, Responding very well in terms of of recovery. So that's at one end. At the other end, um, in terms of of Latin America, where we have a couple of terminals that are uh, moving ahead, the difference there is we're trying to create our own demand rather than waiting for um, uh, an existing demand to pick up. And what we are seeing is that low LNG prices are making what was already an attractive proposition to convert from diesel or heavy fuel oil to cleaner and cheaper LNG, as LNG prices drop, of course, that becomes even more attractive. And we're making really good progress on two terminals in, in Latin America to follow one from, from Sojipe.
0: Okay, that's helpful. Uh, Mark, this is the market you guys play in more and more, um, a bit in a, in a different way than, than Golar, but you, you're obviously active in, in Bahrain um, and other, other markets where you're providing infrastructure assets beyond simply um, uh, Marine midstream. So just Mark, I'm just curious, are you seeing, are you, are you starting to see any green shoots in terms of, in terms of a demand response? And if not, you know, from from the lower commodity environment that really kind of pertain through to, you know, the entire back half of the year, maybe kind of stripping out the, even kind of the COVID period we're in now. Um, and if not, when do you think we'll start to see that kind of play out in the market?
1: Yes. The good news is we are seeing it. Um, so I certainly can support what everyone's saying here. We are seeing it in the form of multi-month charters. So we just fixed um, one of our ships on, on multi-month to an international trader, and we are on subs to shortly fix another one to an uh, Asian utility. And these are all through the end of the year. So um, we'll be nine, over 98% fixed this year. We just have a half ship uh, not fixed out of our 47 LNG carriers. These are all on fixed rate charters all the way through the end of the year. And the point of this is, yes, these multi-month uh, charters taken by traders and utilities e- indicate that these guys see long-term, you know, near-term demand. So we are, we are absolutely seeing it. As for the rates, I, I also think these are, are are been holding surprisingly steady, mostly because of Asia. And um, so, yeah, but more so on the multi-month opportunity than the rate increases. What we're seeing. Gotcha.
0: Always seen, curious, curious what you're seeing on that end, both just in terms of a you know a demand response. But also, mm-hmm. you know, being you know having had one of the larger spot fleets in the market, um, just curious whether you know ha- how you're seeing the marine environment and, and the LNG carrier market react to the tighter arbitrage. Is it having an impact on the way your customers think about how they book their freight? It's obviously been kind of a bit of a clunky process as the market has kind of become more merchant with people not covering you know capacity needs at times. And um, yeah, no, but.
2: I think, you know, let's a, it's a good thing for kind of the freight market. You have this uh, oil crash right now. It's like, you know, when McDonald's sells uh, Big Mac at $1, they get a lot of more customers. So the same thing is true with, with energy. And, uh, you know, it's probably a bad analogy because uh, coal used to be the junk food of energy. You know, it's uh, cheap and it gets to, you warm quickly, but you feel bad afterwards. Uh, right now, LNG is cheaper than coal. Uh, it's uh, uh, you know so cheap that uh, uh, also you could possibly see contract prices below spot prices uh, when you are approaching autumn uh, and then, of course, we have a very really tight arbitrage, but uh, it's not always kind of the arbitrage in that you know uh, you know you know different spaces, so different bases, also the arbitrage in time. so it's a bit like mm-hmm. physics where you have space time because. Uh, what you have now is a tight arbitrage uh, between the different basins, but you have a big arbitrage when you're getting into time, because we are now going to get the contango or the super contango from oil. After the oil slumped down to twenty-five dollars, the oil curve went from backwardation to contango, and this means that uh, you know once the the oil price slumped, you know gets into the LNG contract prices, the whole LNG curve will be in contango. We have so far, we have you know before this happened, we had Contango in the spot LNG, which is basically 30% of the market, while uh, contact LNG was in backwardation. Now both of them, 100% of the market will be in Contango, so that will be be good. Uh, and then we also have another uh, element uh, related to coal, and it's the fact that you know what is the co- COVID? It's uh, basically. A it's called the SARS-CoV-2, it's a, secure, it's a, it's a severe acu- acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2. So, you know, the least thing you want to do these days is to burn a lot of coal and pollute the local air quality. So, you know, looking at what they are doing in South Korea, where they're closing close to half of the coal plants. Uh, and, you know, this is a health policy. Which is very important these days, and it doesn't cost anything because uh, LNG is cheaper than coal. So uh, you know, I think that will create uh, demand in the time. It will be uh, you know probably not as good for for coal prices, and I'm I'm surprised that Newcastle coal is still at sixty five dollars per ton. Yeah,
0: Jefferson, I wanted to kick this to you now, just along the lines of what we just went through um, in terms of in terms of the market reaction and where we stand today, and specifically. Actually, something I think Mark even mentioned too around seeing a bit of a demand response in terms of people looking for a bit more length. Is that something that you're starting to see? Um, and then, is that how uniform is that across the asset curve? Um, and do we see enough of a demand response where we start to see steams and, and older tonnage move as well?
3: Uh, yes, absolutely. Because um, you really had rates bottoming out a couple of uh, about a month ago, a couple of weeks ago. Um, for we still benchmark everything at the 160 to 165,000 cubic meter uh, TFDE vessels and then uh, a discount or premium to that and rates were bottoming out around like the 30 to mid 35 to $40,000 per day and since then they've been uh, uh, going up significantly and it really is based on the multi month charters Uh, that you have a lot of people coming in and uh, energy players, majors, and wanting to secure their shipping or make sure they have enough shipping through the winter period. So that requires them to do six to 12-month fixtures, which then pulls out available supply out of the market. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it is, uh, and and that's really a lot of the volatility of spot charter rates in general is driven by uh, how much? What vessels are being put on multi-month charter? And you see a lot of sublets. And right now yeah. you're seeing both. Um,
2: from could I, could I just add? Because you know sure. one thing is the headline rates, which are up like twenty percent the last uh, two three weeks. But you know where we see the big difference is on the ballast bonus conditions, yeah. where yep. you were you know three weeks ago you were one-way economics. Now you are full round trip in uh, Atlantic, and yep. you are yep. round trip to, to hub. Uh, you know, typically Singapore in the Pacific Area. So that contributes a lot more than just the headline rates.
3: Absolutely, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Yeah, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing the, uh, we're seeing the terms and conditions change as well. Uh, that's a, that's a great point. Um, and also, kind of wanted to make a, a, a point too about the the ARB price. Uh, you know, we we've never been a favor of you know using JKM or ARB pricing to predict where the TC rates are going. Of course, it has an impact. In- and, and when, when JKM's at $20, then, then it's great for everybody. Um, but you still have, and we saw this last year, situations where you're a long product, but you're short shipping. So you still need to move the volume so rates can still climb and even spike in those situations. And, right. and we're seeing that right now. Car- delivery of cargo is paramount. Uh, the people yeah. have to ensure that they're, they're meeting their obligations to lift and deliver cargoes.
0: Yeah, you know, from from an equity perspective, it, it it there's definitely a it it's somewhat challenging for a bull freight thesis when you're talking about like a narrower arbitrage because you've you in a sense you've got a bit of a ceiling on it. But maybe you know a scenario like this could help kind of further kind of separate those two themes where you know you really have you know distinct fundamentals from the midstream section versus the upstream and maybe it won't trickle down to the same degree. Yeah. I'm just curious, kind of on the other end of the market, and this is a good question for for Mark and 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 for actually for for the entire owner owner panel, but the in terms of some of the tenders that are out there now, um, kind of juxtaposed against the kind of systemic degree of slippage we're seeing kind of very quietly kind of around the world in terms of projects that were FID and green lit. You know, we've seen, uh, you know, LNG Canada, you know, put half their workforce um, uh, on to the side. Um, that certainly seems like it's slipping. We've seen Golden Pass effectively on FID. Um, you know some some slower progress on new trains in in the Arctic, which I know you know we're, are smaller, but i I know you know certainly we 're expecting a pretty big Russian build out some delays in 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 mozambique and I, I think that the, the, the idea is that it it the supply curve is still going to be pretty steep but it might just be flatter than people might think you know, when we kind of look up from all this in six months i 'm curious in in terms of participating in tenders to put tonnage into those projects what do you do as a ship owner in that scenario? Are you, does it impact your willingness to participate in those tenders? Um, or do you have risk parameters in place to where you don't have capital kind of stuck in, in the yard, um, for, for tonnage, that's not going to be needed for, you know, it's going to be, you know, needed a year or two after, um, it, uh, later than it was originally intended to. So maybe Mark, I'll, I'll start with you because you guys have a pretty big term book and, and then, and Oyster, you, know, you guys are, you guys and, uh, and, and goal are both, you know, Relatively active participants in that kind of business as well. But just how, I'm curious, as a ship owner, how do you think about participating in those tenders when you see that degree of project slippage?
1: Sure. So, we have, as you said, we have a, of the 47 LNG carriers we have, they're all on term charter. They're all at sea. We have nothing on order. And fortunately, not having speculative ships to bid into projects, the products are, as you know, almost always late. Virus or no virus, OPEC or no OPEC, no they tend to be late. The only exception that comes to my mind is one you mentioned, which is Yamal, it was a fantastic execution. That's the first Yamal. So um, we actually, we welcome the delays, frankly, for Qatar and Aramco, we're seeing some and others. They allow us to continue to deliver uh, rapidly before we, um, we, we can also look at new build designs that are, are changing pretty rapidly and improving over what was done speculatively. Um, we're actually we're supportive of the delay. We can use the breather ourselves at TK. Um, the other thing that we're seeing, and we we've, we've we we uh, we didn't participate in the Mozambique, but I understand there's been progress on that. The returns still don't look great for us on the new build side. I think there needs to be a reset or recalibration on the return side before we'll step back into the new builds. So just to kind of reiterate, we're not we're in favor of this. We have no tonnage to put in. We are happy to delever. We want the rates to reset and and the 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 technology is always improving. So the the, the mm-hmm. more recent we can get, the better.
0: And Ian, I'm curious what your thoughts around that and then specifically what Mark was referencing in terms of the new build return and you know how that dovetails with the way Golar thinks about selling LNG carrier fleet. Obviously it's a business you guys have been looking to exit for a while. I'm curious one, you know, are, do you see the or do do you react kind of the same way to seeing that kind of that kind of slippage? Uh, for, for global projects is kind of a kind of a, a welcome breather um, and then you know as it pertains to you know the returns on new build and even second hand tonnage do you, do you think we need to see the market reset before it's more it's attractive to invest
4: it's a it's an interesting topic because regardless of the returns we still see people piling in and, and, and ordering new ships obviously not right now but certainly as soon as the rates stick a turn up um, you know, we do have uh, owners wanting to participate in it, as you know. GOLA has not ordered a new ship since 2012, so um, we don't want to participate speculatively or on uh, to try and bid into these charter rates because, uh, you know, six, seven, eight percent return is maybe what we can get out of these, uh, you know, from from capital on on new build shipping just isn't uh, good enough. Uh, from us in terms of what we can do as alternatives, and in both the the upstream FLNG and and the downstream that we that we talked about earlier, and um, the, the the other the other thing about delays is they they are inevitable. Um, it'll be interesting to see what that does to the proposed or or, or uh, um, the uh, the compression we we're expecting to see in availability. This structural shortage of ships as we move through the next two years. And how long those delays are, and what it does to that time frame vis-a-vis new builds coming out of the yards, and whether the new builds come out or are in fact delayed. So I think we've got mm-hmm. a few interesting bits of the dynamic puzzle happening here.
0: Well, while well, well, I've got you, Ian, just to, to, to pivot a bit upstream, actually, I know you know we, we focus a lot on on Golar Power and and the different developments there. But if I if I think back to when we actually started to see third-party FLNG business getting done, you know, the Hilly was born kind of in a market like this, um, where it kind of pays to be smaller and a bit, and frankly, a bit weird. You know, it's not a, you know, a 20 ton LNG, pro, you know, export project in the U.S. Gulf and being different in this kind of environment tends to matter. So I'm curious uh, uh, on that end, I know I would, I would imagine you know inbound inquiry around FLNG is probably pretty muted right now, but if you look at the prospects for the next year or two, you know, we seen Semper. It looks like they're still going to, put, you know, go ahead with Costa Azul, which is two and a half million tons or some smaller projects in Canada. So, the, you know, the, the notion of smaller projects maybe inching over the line while the big guys are stuck could, could gain some traction. I'm just curious what, what your expectations are for the next year or two and whether you think you can, you can put, you know, another slug of capital to work in that market if that's realistic.
4: I mean, what we are seeing is we we still see activity around FLNG. These projects do, as you know, take time to come to fruition. I think uh, on BP with Gimme, which we're, we're building right now, that, that took two years from the, the 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 time we really started engaging seriously to to take an FID. Um, so there is a bit of background activity. I think one thing that will come to be when when the industry gets sight of the future of of LNG pricing, there will come a point where. Uh, People will want to develop, uh, customers will want to develop projects. And when that happens, having the lowest cost and fastest speed to market LNG and an FLNG solution is going to be very attractive, particularly if it's associated gas and not massive volumes. It's a way of, you know, monetizing gas and even at at four or five dollars for the right location that can be um, an economically viable uh, prospect. And we're we're trying to, we have our two designs. We have got the Mark 1, which is hilly and gimme, and we're working hard on what we call the Mark 3, which is a new build out of Korea, um, just to satisfy a different market with with slightly higher capacity. So it's not this year, um, maybe maybe next year sometime, maybe the year after, but certainly uh, it's still an area that we're interested in putting capital to work at the right time.
0: It seems it seems almost silly to ask when you really look at you know what's what seems like it still has progress now and you look back to twenty fourteen to twenty sixteen what actually made progress then and you know it was actually a relatively nice period for 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 flng so that's that's helpful um, mm-hmm. we've seen uh, and 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 Mark I wanted to, to kick it to you guys and 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 uh, Ian as well but in terms of looking at the next. Couple quarters, right? It's obviously there's a lot of uncertainty. You know, maybe there's some some silver linings and some green shoots around starting to kind of reemerge. But I'm curious how you think about managing your balance sheets and your cash, your capital commitments, and your return of capital um, in this environment, and and whether your position or your thought process has changed from the beginning of the year. Um, And then, if you happen to be around for that period, which I know a lot of you were, how is it different? than where we were in 2008 and 2009 in terms of your stance um and how you were preparing your company um for uh for the remainder of 2020 so that's probably a good question for everybody um you know we you know, i'll start with you and then um we'll go to mark and then back to uh de and that works
2: yeah so if you if you go back to 2008 of course lng industry was totally different than today and, and volumes was uh you know much lower as well uh, we went to like 200 million tons in 2010 and we are now at close to, to 400. So, so back then, you know, it was uh, all back to back shipbuilding, contract financing and time charter signed at the time, same time. And it, back in 2008, we, I was in Knudsen and we just ordered four, you know, tri-fuel ships on, on 20-year contracts. So. So it's a bit different then. You know, you could get 100% financing from banks, and you didn't have to use capital markets brokers and all that stuff, and you could do it private. So it was very simple. Today, of course, it's a bit different environment, and we are kind of in what we call LNG3.0 here in Flex, where we have a bit different kind of approach to to chartering our ships and giving customers more flexibility. Of course, we have been very prudent on our kind of balance sheet. So. So, of course, uh, we are happy these days that we raised one, close to $1.3 billion of long-term debt financing last year, and that we closed the year with uh, around $130 million in cash. So, how has it affected us? I think it's affected us by the fact that we paid out 10 cents in, in dividend, despite we were making 44 cents in, in, in the fourth quarter, and despite the fact we booked uh, Q1 at close to $70,000 on a TCE basis, which is a pretty good number. So, so of course, we are preserving more cash uh, and and of course, uh, you know, a lot of people will have a hard time, you know, there's been a lot of uh, kind of Wall Street uh, alchemy where people have been kind of putting layers in the balance sheet with different bonds and preferred equity and, and they thought it was arbitrage and now they are realizing it wasn't arbitrage, it was balance sheet speculation. So those people will have a bit uh, of a struggle, refinancing bonds and and such, which are coming to maturity these days, or part we don't have a loan maturing before July 2024. So so we have a clean balance sheet, plenty of liquidity. And why do we do it? Because we have a business strategy where we're taking more risk than having uh, very long term contracts. And then we have to have a very strong balance sheet. Mm
0: -hmm. Mark, uh, I'm curious, how do you think about the current environment relative to, uh, to the crisis and even kind of the, the energy trough of 2014 and 2015 and, and how is TK preparing to manage its, its cash flow um, and its balance sheet for the remainder of the year? And is that any different than the way you thought you would heading into it?
1: Sure. As you say, there are actually kind of three periods we can address. The first one was 2008 and nine, the financial crisis. And as you know, Mike, we were, um, we were around then. CTP was certainly around. At that time, we asserted that there'd be no change to our EBITDA, despite our, our share price falling in concert with, with everyone else. And that was indeed the, the case. And um, we're repeating the same thing now. We have extraordinarily long uh, cover. Um, it's even higher and might more diverse than it was then. So with our, our fleet 98% fixed through the end of the year and over 96% fixed next year, we are not suspending our guidance. We are not changing our guidance. We, um, that's where we are. When we turned to 2015, that was painful for us. As you know, Mike, we had to uh, cut our, our dividend to something sustainable. It's been building back from then, but now that the dividend is sustainable, we have certainly no, no plans to cut it. And um, so people can be relying on the, on the, diff, on the distribution. Um, and um, in terms of cash, we're over $400 million of liquidity we are seeing people going uh, down on revolvers, resetting as refinancing as early as they can. Um, we also are gonna wanna try to get at the head of the curve on that. Um, but in terms of what we're gonna do with the cash, we have been buying back. These are pretty good prices in our opinion. And um, we have, unfortunately, the ability to, to look at almost anything in our capital allocation program right now, given the, this, the situation we're in.
0: Okay, Ian? your thoughts on uh, on on managing your balance sheet. I know you're, you, when you guys do dive into projects, they tend to be relatively big checks. So I'm just curious how you think about managing it for the rest of the year, and is that any different than how you thought you would in January?
4: It, it's no different. I mean, what I would say is as, as, a, as a starter is there isn't a company in the world that isn't looking very carefully at uh, um sure. you know, cash, cash reserves right now. And that, I think that goes without saying, really. Uh, you know, If you look at our two ends of CapEx, we've got the Gimme project, which is a fairly chunky ca- capital machine, but that's being paid right now. We've got our uh, 700 million facility in place, um, and that's been drawn down for, for most of this year with a little bit coming in from us towards the end of the year. And at the other end in Golar Power, um, we've, as I said, we've got COD, and we're starting to generate uh, cash from our 25 year power contract, and that'll be used to uh, develop the downstream business within Golar Power. And then finally, the, the ships uh, in, in the middle, which have been historically a bit of a problem child for Golar, um, all being in the spot market. Uh, compared to my colleagues, some of our colleagues, uh, we're still not that, that high as a percentage, but we have 60% of 2020 backlog already booked, which for a spot fleet is actually uh, pretty high. So you can see mm-hmm. the, the change in the strategy there. So uh, that's, that's our story. Gotcha. That's helpful.
0: You know, we're, we're, we're just about out of time, but I do want to just kind of put one more general question out, and I'll start with Jefferson. Um, it just, in terms of just, just, there's a lot, there's been a lot, there's a lot going on. There's a lot flying around between, you know, the OPEC pricing war, COVID, uh, depressed commodity environment. Um, you know, it's been, it's been an interesting quarter to say the least, but, you know, as you look at into Q2 and Q3, what's, what's one topic and it could be, you know, LNG related or more market related that you keep looking at that you think the market should be paying a little bit more attention to than it is right now. Um, and I think there's probably in, in this kind of environment, there are probably more of these valid answers than ever before because there's so many different permutations. But I'm curious, like Jefferson, in terms of what you've seen in the market, what you've heard, heard people talk about, what's, what's, what's one thing you think probably needs to get more attention over the next couple quarters or, or will?
3: Well, the, on, the, uh, on the downside, would definitely be paying attention to cargo cancellations out of, out of the U.S. Gulf um, if we see that actually occurring because of just the, the low price ARB. Uh, but on the, uh, and on the upside, I'll be paying attention to replacement of steam turbine vessels. So because there is such a large uh, efficiency gain by, uh, for a lot of the charterers out there uh, between using the modern tonnage versus some of the older tonnage, um, and there is a lot of older tonnage still owned by a lot of the projects out there, are you going to see them swapping out of the steam turbines and into the more modern uh, modern mm-hmm.
0: vessels? We can talk about that for an hour, but uh, oh, 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 you know, I'll, I'll kick it to you. What's 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 one thing you think that the market isn't talking enough about right
2: now? I've been talking a lot about uh, getting rid of the steamship, so I won't mention that again. But um, <laughs> but uh, I think it's the cheap, you know, the cheapness of of LNG, and with the price crash of oil, LNG is gonna be very cheap, and we are talking about three to four dollar per million btu maybe even lower and, and right now coal is like four dollars on equivalent pricing when you are taking into consideration the fact that our coal plant is much less efficient than a gas power plant so of course we will be droning in a lot of cheap uh, lng and that's going to you know create demand and, and create the demand for freight mm-hmm. mark
1: well, we really batten down the hatches on the business side. So I'll just turn to something that everyone is talking about, but they can't talk about enough. It's our crew and the colleagues. I don't know where this ends. It's going to get tough. So that's really where really our thoughts are now that our business side is locked up to the end of the year.
0: Very fair. Yeah,
4: Ian. I got a comment on the crew, but an additional one is FSIUs. I mean, FSIUs take forever to get contracts to put in place. We're trying a different approach to develop our own markets and put our own FSIUs into our own terminals to try and accelerate it. With cheap gas, as Euston is saying, cheap LNG, we should be doing far more of that around the world for places that need power to displace, you know, fossil fuels, uh, you know, animal animal uh, fuels, that sort of thing. We we really need to do more as a as a as a group of people to bring gas to the masses. So FSIUs. Speeding
0: that process up is probably another hour-long conversation, so we'll, uh, we'll save that. But uh, <laughs> all right, well, I think I'm, I'm getting the hook from, uh, from Capital Link. So I want to thank everybody for joining us, and I want to thank the panel. This has been, been super helpful, um, and I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and so with that, we will uh, we'll say goodbye. So thank you very much, guys. Thank, thank you very much. Mike, good to see Thanks, thank everyone.
3: You.